Hello and welcome to another week, another edition, another episode of The Giant Pod with me, Andy Rintmore. My guest this week is Clive Stocker. Clive is one of my most respected uh, and loved friends, associates, affiliates, whatever you want to say. Clive was my music lecturer at City of Bath College, where I studied for about four years. He is also the author of How to Become a Confident Performer. He has one of the greatest sets of ears I've ever seen in practice, and he is also a Toastmaster master. We talk about public speaking, we talk about performing, we talk about how to overcome stage fright and fears and doubt and failure, uh, how to prepare for public speaking events. We talk about challenging yourself, teaching techniques, the subtle dark art of manipulation to get people to overcome their own fears and self-doubt and achieve uh, the things that they want to achieve. We talk about educating as a process, as a way of life, as a philosophy, if you want to go that far. Talk about Glenn Gould, the famous pianist. We talk about his life. We talk about specifically the Goldberg variations and, and how he had two different approaches at different stages of his life to uh, playing the work of the works of Bach. Uh, we talk about loads of stuff. It's a really, really good chat. I was so, so pleased to catch up with Clive after probably about eight years, I think, and have this conversation. And I really hope you guys are going to enjoy it as well. So without further ado, here it is, a man I deeply admire and respect, Clive Stocker. Where does it all begin for you, Clive? Because I think you've got one of the finest set of ears I've I, I've had the the pleasure of knowing, really, to be <laughs> honest. And I'm just wondering how one acquires ears so acutely tuned and uh, uh, and worked on. Well, that's a really really good question. I think when I was about six, we had this thing called the Bentley test at school. And right. what it was, it was a, a vinyl LP that they put on, and you had to tell, you had to write down 40 different pitches and say whether they were sharper or flatter. And apparently, I got them all correct, all 40. Wow. So when I was, I was about six or seven, and they said, Oh, you probably should play the violin. And I, I didn't at the time, but uh, yeah, I think that was when I realized, Oh, maybe something different about my ears i don't know why but and i think that's obviously gone on to being very fussy and uh shouting at people for being out of tune <laughs> <laughs> i do remember when we were in studying in, in college and uh of course you were one of the the senior lecturers and we would do those playthroughs on the friday afternoon and it would just be sometimes, not always. There's a lot. There was a lot of talent there, and and, um, and a lot of the people from that sort of era of college have gone on to do some really cool things. Um, but I remember, like sometimes, it, it, just the biggest dirge, just the biggest ding, <laughs> and you would you know put your hand up, Simon Cow style at the back, and halt the halt the the first sort of minute of the performance and you'd say something like your e string is slightly flat and it just just some like heavy metal guy with hair all over his pickups just sort of like huh am i huh? And, you know 
without doubt would whack the tuna on and and have a fiddle and then be like, oh yeah. <laughs> I think you get that is just the experience having done that for. Well, with you, when you were there, about 12 years, and uh, you could tell which string was out of tune. And um, rather than say, hey, guys, just retune, you just say, yeah, your G, your G string's a bit, a bit flat or sharp or whatever. And then, you know, it just saves a bit of time, really. But I think it was, it's just that having that initial ear and then also practicing every single week. I just want people to get better. And I think that was that is who I am and how I kind of operate, really, which is probably at the centre of the book, Yeah, you know, which is about people getting better at what they're doing. And that book is, that is spawned from a, was this a PhD you were doing or a doc, what were you doing, a doctor's? No, I did, I did a master's degree uh, in music technology and I, I enjoyed it, but I got a little bit fed up with, having to do lots of academic note-taking and, you know, references and and all these sorts of things. I got a little bit bored with doing that. So I thought, okay, I'm either going to do a PhD, but I couldn't face the academic side of it, or I'm going to write a book. Because I was heading towards, hurtling towards the age of 40, and the book won. So you wrote the book called How to Become a Confident Performer. Uh, I do remember sending you a little quote for that, uh, and it didn't make it in, but that's okay. Oh, well, I'll tell you what, in volume two, <laughs> volume two. <laughs> yeah, so did, how did you find the experience of writing the book? Because you've said, I don't want to do anything academic yeah. with this with this uh, master's um, degree, yet you go and do what I consider really to be one of the most academic things, which is write a bloody book. Well, I the, the, what I wanted to do was... Uh, you know, from all that experience with all of the playthroughs and all of the coaching of, of different performers over the years, you you learn a lot of skills and lots, I have to say, not necessarily skills, but tricks, because a lot of them are tricks about getting people to do something and get them to do it on stage and gain that confidence. And it really is about um, a lot of that stuff is not necessarily academic. Uh, and I think that's partly why I thought I'm not going to write uh, an academic thesis because a lot of these things, they don't have deep, uh, you know, deep psychological background and research and all that kind of stuff. They just, it's just something that I tried and it worked. And some of that has basis in uh, neuro linguistic programming. Um mm. And then some of it is is other books that I've read, um, or it's just actually, oh, I wonder if I say this to them, I wonder if it will get them on stage and get them performing. And, um, you know, for example, I was, one of the lads was so nervous. He, he just said, I, I, I can't, I, it was before the, the Christmas performance. He said, I, I, I can't, I can't go on. I can't, I can't do it. I said, well, look, I'll tell you what, if you, if you leave now, you'll be able to get the bus, you know, back, back to Froome, which is, uh, mm. you know, obviously <laughs> a place that, you know, uh, reasonably well. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So if you, <laughs> if you go now, you can get the bus and you can be back in Froome for EastEnders. And the look on his face was really confused. And what, what, well, I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to go home. 
I said, okay, well, if you don't want to go home, that must mean that you want to be here. And if you're going to be here, you might as well perform. So what do you reckon? Do you want to stay here and perform or do you want to go home? And he went, um, uh, perform, I I think. And he looked confused and he got on the stage and he performed and he looked confused throughout the entire performance, (laughs) but he did it. And then he came up to me afterwards and said, you know, you're a, well, yeah, he dropped the F-bomb. So he said, you're a fucker, you are. And, but he, he kind of had a smile, you know, in between right. the expletives. So it's just stuff like that, you know. So you use the power of suggestion. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, all sorts or of is, Sorry, is that, is saying the power of suggestion maybe perhaps giving it less credit than it's due? Is it, are you, are you practising a much deeper, more thought-out process there? Or are you literally just trying to contrast something for someone well you could do both things really i mean there's lots of different techniques that you can use i mean one of them is is put the dead dog on the table which is basically give give somebody an option that you that you think would be good for them and they they will really want to do themselves or mm. something that really stinks like a, this dead dog on the table so i would give them these two options and then they would pick uh, the one that really was better for them. Um, so, yeah, that's a little bit of manipulation. And I think teachers are one of the, the most manipulative people on the planet, for sure. Right. <laughs> and what made you want to go into teaching? So they said to you, okay, you've got all these 40 questions right on the, uh, what was that test called? The it's ma- called the, the Bentley test. The Bentley test. And so where do you, how do you find yourself in teaching, uh, you know, teaching... Um, prodigious you know talents such as myself of and, course and, and others um <laughs> yeah well i mean you know yeah no you were great you were really really good obviously you're rubbish now but i mean you were <laughs> you were good then <laughs> well how did i get into teaching that's a really good yeah. question uh when i was doing my uh degree music yeah. degree we're getting towards the end and a lot of people had studio projects that they had to finish and I just thought, I love being in the studio. And I thought, well, if I hang around in the studio, I can help all the people who hadn't set one foot in the studio. And I can probably just help them, support them. And and I had probably the best two weeks of my life up until that point. And I just thought, yeah, I'd like to do something like this. But I don't mm. know if it would be teaching because I think it'd be a bit scary and uh, and then a few years later, I, I did my PGCE and and uh, and became a teacher. So, so before that, did you have sort of aspirations to be a professional musician, or a rock star, a session guy, a, a, a jazz um, superstar? What what was where were you going with this? Was it just because it was you had a love of music and an affinity for it? Well, I think in, initially uh, when I was. 16 or something I changed the piano teacher and uh and she auditioned me a couple of years before and said oh well why don't you have my uh you know have lessons from my my one of my piano pupils who's rather good and he is really good and I learned a lot about pop music and really got into that but then he gave up the piano and, and she said well do you want to take his you know his teaching slot I said yeah that'd be great and she had no idea that I'd kind of progressed so much. And she said, oh, I really wished I'd, I'd, you'd come to me a couple of years ago. 
and uh, and I said, well, I want I want to play all these different pieces, and and I listed them off, and and she said, well, uh, we better get busy then, and she just said, okay, let's play all these pieces, and then after uh, doing that, a few different pieces, I said, I'd love to I'd love to be a concert pianist, and she said. Okay, well, we'll have to get you uh, grade eight, and we'll have to get you the audition pieces together. And I said, okay, fine. So, uh, and it was just this idea: if she, if I wanted to do it, then she would just say, yeah. She wouldn't say that's too hard for you. And and I went along to this audition thinking, okay, I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it. And I played amazingly, absolutely blasted. You know, I played as well as I was ever going to play. And then I looked around at all the other people and what they were playing and they were playing, I was, you know, I was playing stuff that was quite reasonable, but, you know, compared to what they were playing, I was playing chopsticks, you know, compared to this big concerto type level stuff. And I realized, hang on a minute, I'm in a different league. I'm in the wrong league. And, and that's where, yeah, my, my world fell apart a bit there really, because I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, but all the time, you know, when I went to Bath College, um, well, the Bath College of Higher Education, which was, you know, what Bath Spa University is now, um, I didn't really know what the course was going to be about. And it was, I, I just liked the, the driveway. And I thought, I'm going <laughs> <laughs> to, I, I thought it looks quite pretty. I'm going to come here. Uh, and, but actually the course was so people related and I did lots and lots of working with singing with people, playing piano with people, producing, composing, the whole lot. And I think that is when I realised that, you know, for me, music's good, but it's got to be about people. Right. So it's the it's the way that it brings people together um, when you're sort of consuming it and enjoying it, but also when you're sharing it and and reveling in the process of music right yeah interesting what were the uh the pieces that you wanted to you you aspire to play can you remember some of them oh yeah yeah i mean i I love rachmaninoff uh big Mm. obviously big russian composer and uh absolutely adored that and uh, my piano teacher played uh, got me to play the prelude number one which was really difficult piece I'd never played anything like it before and that that is what really got me on the path of thinking oh maybe I can be you know something else but um and I I used to play I practice three or four hours a day and uh, really really went for it and then uh, I think after a while I think no it, it's t- it was too solitary and right. uh, and it ha- it wasn't really about people and I think that's that's where it is for me you know it's got to be it's got to be people and music and not necessarily in that order i think can be either right. but, hmm. what makes that rachmaninoff uh so difficult what is because i know with piano obviously it's, it's a it's a two brain it uses two sides of your brain which not all instruments do is that correct um well i mean it, it requires. I mean, obviously, you know this with the drums. Mm. Uh, you, it has. You have to have an an, aut- an awful lot of motor memory in in what you do. So, and I know drummers practice and practice and practice until everything is so second nature. They don't even have to think about it. 
And because yeah. uh, because I mean, a lot of those automation things, like using your left hand alongside your right hand, you have to you have to have practiced that so much for it to become natural. And I think um, that is is why there's a lot of complexity and independence with the hands within that piece and within the piano playing. I think. Um, and it is that practice which lifts you into that next thing. It's the same with all the people with the practice pads. They're always outside on, you know, doing their paradiddles and everything. And it's, it's those people that really shine, don't they, at the top, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I was never a guy that sat and played on a practice pad for eight hours a day. Uh, 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 My drumming was always way more sort of therapeutic and sort of any sort of skill came along after it. I mean, I get, I mean, maybe I'm underselling myself. I mean, I wanted to be good, but I couldn't, I'm not the kind of guy that can sit there on a pad and do double, double stroke, double stroke rolls for six hours a day or whatever. I know people that do and it's incredible. And I have the nothing but the maximum respect for them. And they are incredible players but it's just uh, like you said with your with your piano study. It's too solitary for me. It's mm. about the it's about creating something with others and and having that chemistry in a band and and playing and gigging and fun and and, and rock and roll. I've never really been a big sort of student of the drums in, in that regard. But um, I wanted to get your opinion on something, um, Glenn Gould. Oh yeah, are you are you a fan? Massive fan. Massive right. Fan. Because I've wanted to talk to someone about Glenn Gould for a while because I haven't quite... I've downloaded his Bark box set. And when I opened up the the, the zip file, it was just unbelievable volumes of um, music in all different, you know, in terms I, I don't fully understand. It just felt a bit foreign to me. But what I do understand is that he's got two versions of Bark. One that he plays as a young man and one that he plays as an older man, and they call them the Goldberg variations, don't they? And apparently they're very, very different pieces. I was wondering if you if you have the understanding of that, of those recordings, if you could sort of tell, tell me, like, how are they different? Because he's technically playing the same... He's playing the same yeah. music, isn't he? He's, playing, he's, he's coming off the same hymn sheet, let's say, <laughs> as he was... Um, you know, thir- I don't know how many years there are, there are between them, but it's probably a few decades. Yeah, they are. They are I think it's about 25 to 30 years between them. Mm. Uh, when you've played the first ones, I mean, they're, they're, a, they're a particularly interesting piece because the Bach wrote them. They were a, a commission for uh, somebody, Count or King uh, Goldberg, and he was an insomniac. And he said, I want, I need you to write me something that my court musician can play that will get me to sleep. So, and he said, uh, yeah, okay, I've got something I'm working on at the moment. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll finish it. So he, he wrote it and the idea it was just to get you to sleep. So there's lots and lots of repeats. Every single, there's, there's two halves to each variation and there's 32 variations and each half is repeated. So you can imagine that's quite taxing on the listener. Um, so what, um, yeah, and one of the things that, that Glenn Gould would, would do was when he started, he had a, an amazing facility to play Bach 
uh, with incredible independence so um and detachment with the with the lines they don't they sound like a sort of a digital sequencer rather than somebody playing it um and that was incredibly amazing to be able to play these very fast scales which uh, with detachment so there's there's sort of like little gaps in between all of the notes so when he was when he became famous and he was a child prodigy really i think he'd learned all of the bach preludes 48 preludes uh, and fugues by the age he was about 10 or 11 i think but uh, and he could play them really really fast all of them from memory uh, by the time he went out and did the tour uh, he toured the goldberg variations and people loved it on the tour. So when they got to the end of the tour, he recorded it. And I think it was with Columbia Records. And they said, right, um, go on, go for it. And he recorded it. And it's something like 40-odd minutes. And it really shouldn't be. It should be about an hour. Um, but because he said, well, I was just tearing through it. Because that's that's how I did it. And people seemed to like it and were quite impressed by it. I mean, the, the interpretation is still good, but it's a little bit flashy really right and then when he got towards the end of his career and i think this is he gave up performing right at the end of his career um and he uh, he said okay i've i i didn't do that any justice i've just played it as quick as i could and i i want to bring a new interpretation to it partly because the the recording techniques had improved and also um his interpretation had improved I mean, I I prefer the original version because I I think it's got there's a reason why that one was bought and it was the most popular classical recording, and it was in so many people's homes that I just think yeah, there's some magic about that, real magic. So yeah, I think the the second one he does play more of the repeats, and it's it, it's it's a bit laborious, right. <laughs> the way the way I sort of um, imagined it is that the first is that it, it shows a um, an arc, I guess, of evolution and growth and maturity. That it, maybe this is reading into it a bit too deep. Perhaps we're heading into sort of super pretentious territory. But you know, the first recordings you could say he's 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 young. He's full of energy, full of piss and vinegar, and he wants to go at <laughs> it. And these are the these, this is how he's interpreted it as a young man. And then he has these decades of life experience, ups and downs, whatever. I don't really know his life, but I have a feeling he had a pretty sort of crazy artist life, didn't he? And then towards the end of it, perhaps when he's older, he's he's going through these in a different way with with life experience and with, with hindsight and um, perhaps playing them in the way that he feels them now, which I think is incredibly interesting. And I don't know if there's, I'm sure there are artists that do that, but um, I'm, I don't know if, um, if they're quite as obvious as probably having one set of music recorded 20, 30 years after. The, well, the interestingly, um, <clears throat> Nigel Kennedy did something similar with the four seasons back in the late eighties. He recorded it and it was pretty out there. Um, and that's why it sold a lot, apart from the fact he had some really spiky hair. Um, (laughs) And then he re-recorded it, and it's even more out there now, and about sort of 30 years later. So I don't know. I think um, there is something really magical about 
two interpretations, but he was unique in that, you know, hearing from his studio producers, he could go into a studio and he would he would have two or three completely different interpretations of those ready to record, uh, which which I mean, it's really difficult to be able to do that for a piece that's about an hour long to have three completely different interpretations and you can switch between them. I mean, there, there are no other performers that I've ever heard of that can do that. And he had a very different brain. Uh, do you think these guys are the guys that are the, the sort of the, they're almost like the mad scientists of music and mm. they, they have very little sleep and they live very um, fast and hard and they're perfectionists and they're obsessive. Um, do you think these are those those characteristics? Are oh, they absolutely that you've described, Glenn Gould? That is who he was. Uh, I mean, he he was um, he he had a, a real fixation with hand washing. Uh, he he wanted to make sure that he took so many pills and things to keep himself well. And he wasn't like a drug addict, but he he was, I, I need to be well, I need to take these tablets. So if I don't take these tablets, I'm not going to be well. And he would be incredibly obsessive about everything. And, um, you know, even, even the performance and the recordings and all of that. I mean, he, he used to listen to two or three radio stations at the same time in his house because he said, look, my brain can can pick these up and I feel like if I don't do this I'm going to be missing out and I'm wasting a very good brain that can pick up three strands of information at any one time oh my days so that's incredible do you think these guys were possibly on like an autistic spectrum I yes socially uh he definitely was on that spectrum and there's been lots of stories uh i don't think he ever married and i don't think he had particularly had any relationships so but he was yeah in ve- very obsessive he has some of those traits for sure right and what's your experience teaching because when i was at college there was a, a number of students there i'm not going to be naming any names but there's a number of students there who were uh, autistic and on the spectrum and i remember the intensity in which they loved their instrument and and which and how and how they knew it inside out and they knew their genre and how how is your experience teaching people like that do you often find that they teach you a lot more than you feel you teach them yeah, I mean that's again another good question. When when I started teaching, I didn't really know. Well, I don't think that Asperger's. I had didn't really know much about it at all. And and when I ran into some of the students, I had no idea. This is when I first started teaching. I had no idea how to tackle it. I didn't know what it was, and I didn't listen to the students, and I didn't do them any favors at all and I hate to say that but um and I think as I went through I just realized that you had to listen to the student and find out what they were thinking and uh why they thought the way that they did and as soon as you start to do that you start to gain an understanding and then 
yeah, you can lead them and know where their limitations are. And um, yeah, I think I think it. And then you start you you, you forget that they have uh, you know that they're on the the spectrum, um, and you just carry on. You know, think oh that's how they how they work and. And actually, some some students who have that are, are more straightforward in some ways than the ones who are who come across as very easygoing. And they'll yeah, yeah, that's cool, you know. And then actually, they're much more difficult in some ways to find out how they're thinking and how they're feeling. It's definitely an honesty that comes with a, 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 you know a lot of people I, I meet and have met who are on the autistic spectrum will have Asperger's. I find them to be very honest people. They tell you they they don't mess around, and you know they will just tell you how they're feeling or you know oh I'm not enjoying this you know and things like that <laughs> and and, and and it's amazing when when you get them when you find out what it is that really makes them not tick but like really interests them and, and mm. really puts them in that place in their in their mind that they love. And um, I'm on the spectrum for sure. I've got ADHD. And I, I mean, you've taught me for three, four years. I mean, mm. you absolutely know I'm on the spectrum. Um, <laughs> but um, it, it's great when you get you get them talking about their new guitar or or, or, or this band that they love. And just this, all this information, incredibly detailed information, very articulate. The recall is incredible. And I just, I love minds like that. And I love brains like that when they get onto their specialist subject, especially if it's one that I, I also enjoy. I just find the, um, the potential of, of non neurotypical minds when in their proper field to be, um, limitless. I think, uh, yeah, I, I I totally agree, and I think that's part of the reason why uh, I love teaching the uh, the pop course because you know what everyone's thinking because they'll tell you and they'll come up to you and they'll shout it in your face, and and some of my uh, other sort of colleagues were like, man, they come to one of our playthroughs and it would get often get quite heated, you know, yeah. if, if somebody hadn't performed or they were mucking about or they were being rude or there was a big problem, it would get quite nasty. And um, and a lot of my uh, teaching colleagues would say, I don't know how you can cope with that. I say, do you know how I can cope with it? Because you see that that guy, he's really angry, isn't he? I said, I know exactly what he's thinking because he's telling me. And and I think that's why I loved working with the, the pop guys because, you know, you, the tr- you can handle the truth to to misquote the x-files um but <laughs> you can handle the truth and i think once you know the truth and then you say okay so you're feeling this all right mm. okay so if what about if we tried this and you go they go yeah then you find solutions much more quickly than if if you aren't uh, if you pretend that everything's okay or you go mm. so i love it i think that's that's something which um, yeah, it's one of the other things I was gonna I wanted to talk about actually was the fact that the experimentation that we did in terms of teaching and some of the techniques within music were was much quicker because we would experiment with stuff and um, and we would if it didn't work we change it 
And if we, if it did work, we we'd do it and we'd add it. We'd we'd change it again just to make it even better to the point where it was just constantly changing. People would complain. We'd change it. Whereas I think in in other departments and other areas, people um, are frightened to get things wrong. Whereas we just danced all over the wrong. <laughs> Had a disco with it. <laughs> Had a disco. Um, and so, how many years did you do at Banff College in total? Nineteen. 19 years yeah it was uh 2001 i started uh, it, i thought you know well it came out of secondary school teaching and i i found that very difficult because right. uh, every week i teach about 450 different uh, children and you cannot make meaningful connections with that many people and i think when when I joined the pop course, yes, it was in my face like I'd never experienced before, but at least you could make some really good connections. And uh, I loved that. I really did. And also the fact that you get to concentrate on, you know, people who are mostly passionate about music as well. You know, mostly, yeah. not all. <laughs> yeah, no, that was the other thing as well, is that, you know, you apply to join this course because presumably you are passionate about music and you want to explore your creativity and learn more and open up your your mind. It definitely opened up my mind a lot to, um, to other genres of music and just generally having a respect for all music, um, which I didn't, not sure I had when I went into college because... I was very much in this like, oh yeah, punk rock in metal or, or nothing, man, <laughs> sort, of, sort of thing. And then, you know, you guys would, you know, I remember you, you in specifically introduced the class, but then by default me to John Martin and just other things. And every week it was just like, you know, being forced to, forced being you know yeah no forced <laughs> yeah forced being forced to look at the beatles to to figure out their history their roots their this their that and then look at like john martin um may you never or you know whatever and it, it, it sort of forces you to, to put them under the microscope and really appreciate the different components and where they've maybe stolen a, a little lick from a rock and roll song or or you know or a, um uh, maybe there's something in in your specialist genre that you love that is sort of a nod to that or or kind of mimics that in some way and how it all just sort of webs and and connects and it's bloody great uh, well i think you know one of the things i learned really when teaching is uh if if you discover something and you're passionate about it you need to share it because i think there's it sounds going to sound a bit woo woo a bit kind of way out but i think that when you when you go on a journey of discovery and uh you know something new and you discover it and it's it's really exciting and it really has a deep heartfelt thing for you you have to share it when you have that and uh, so often i would just share things and think okay because i've got such a strong passion for this now i'm going to share it with you I think that passion and that inspiration then will transfer. I, I never would say to myself, oh, yeah, um, OK, I've got I've discovered this John Martin piece. OK, well, in eight months time, when that comes up in the scheme, I'll play it to the students. I'll be like, no, I'm doing it now. Yeah. And because you, you that it's that immediacy. And I mean, you, you know, you guys gave me that immediacy. And I, I felt like actually I need to give that back to you as well. 
Right. Yeah. They were great days, absolutely great days. And I, and I sort of, you know, I definitely wouldn't have done many of the things I've done since then if I hadn't gone to Bath College and we didn't have those gigs every week and we didn't have the time to develop our chops. The academic side of it was never really my massive forte. As you know, you've spent hours with me um, keeping me on task, but writing coursework <laughs> and, and um, you know, and I, I've, I've sent you messages in private about that, thanking you very much for, your, for the time and effort you did invest in in me. And 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 you know, to be sentimental, you know, I will always um, <laughs> love and respect you for that deeply. Um, but let's get into writing a book. You sit there and you go, right? I'm going to write this book. Here's the concept. You're also teaching at the same time as you're writing it, aren't you? Which is an undertaking of magnificent proportions i think well i think it it took a couple of years you know before uh, i finished it and before it was ready to kind of be published but what i found was that i started off very confident with it um and and then i i i started to think okay maybe i can't do this and it was very interesting because you know, performance was something that I really struggled with massively. And I would be very, very nervous. Um, and it would cripple me and it would really kind of nobble me. Um, and, and to some extent, even while I, while I was teaching you guys, I still had those fears, um, but I knew I couldn't share them. And also knew that, that when I went wrong, I, I felt I couldn't get back. And if you look at some of the other members of the team, they were very, very uh, confident musicians. They were professional musicians, you know, like Rob, uh, Rob Wilson and, you know, Rob Bryan and Duncan and, you know, all of the, uh, you know, the other kind of top musicians. But I, I didn't have the same background. So for me, I've always felt like I had to do things in order to be able to perform that and there are some people who can't tell you much about confidence and performing because they always have been confident is they can't share it because they didn't learn it and um so i i just decided that when i and there is no one way that you're gonna everyone's gonna do this so i decided okay sometimes i, I just recalled you know like the, the 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 person who said i can't get on stage i can't get on stage and that was one chapter and I, I would put it into little chapters and record specific things about recording or it might be something about feeling, not going out to get gigs and just getting paralysed or not being able to write something. Or And so every single chapter, I just thought, you know, dip into it. And uh, very few people I know who uh, who bought it or, or borrowed it or read it or, you know, have gift, been gifted it, they haven't read it from cover to cover there's only a few people that have because that's not the way i intended it to be written did you intend it not to be finished (laughs) (laughs) well i nearly didn't finish it i nearly didn't finish it because you know we had a couple of colleagues who left and and i had to sort of take over and do lots more work um and actually you know i was telling you about this sharing something while it's fresh while it's inspired and I think after two years, the inspiration can die a little bit. And I think it is hard. The, starting it and getting to about halfway through was easy, but then finishing it was, was difficult. 
And and funnily enough, you know, what I learned through the process was that confidence is situational. So yes, right. I I you know conquered an awful lot of my confidence issues with music and performing it but not for things like public speaking and various other stuff so i and i went to do a promotional thing and somebody said oh i'd come and do this thing it was a big haul and the night before i got absolutely wasted and completely sabotaged it because i was so nervous but because i'd written this book i no i'm not nervous i'm not nervous and i was apps and i was so ill um, I could barely do it because I just sabotaged it. And I think I sort of realised that actually it's a lifelong, just because I've written a book, it's probably, you know, it doesn't mean that I've overcome confidence. I know how to overcome it, but in different situations, I'm going to have the same problem. Right. I think as we all do. Yeah. So, And so, yeah, so you felt that because you've written a book called How to Become a Confident Performer, you there was a pressure on you, I guess, that you felt that the, the people who'd come to see you talk about the book and prom- promote the book would expect you to be infallible and the consummate professional and just the the pinnacle of um security and confidence yeah and and precision you know uh like oh yeah he, he never makes mistake uh kind of vibe you know but but actually you know I, if uh, in the book i talk a lot about you know i don't care if i make mistakes i really i really don't so um you know and i did a uh, a colleague uh, passed away before Christmas and uh, I did a a Zoom uh, remembrance service and I wrote a song and played it and I presented and hosted it and everything and a lot of those skills are practised and I don't feel that fear um, and one of the biggest ways to overcome that fear I think for me was is people it's doing things for people and with people so and then it has a meaning and it yeah it has a purpose and therefore I I don't feel that nerves in any way shape or form as much as I would have done right and so fast forwarding from the book a few quite a few years I'm in in the van or wherever I'm somewhere on the road with uh with my band sick ones and I'm I'm in the front and I'm chatting to Ben Curd, who's the former vocalist <laughs> now. And he says, oh, Andy, I've um, I've started this thing called Toastmasters. And uh, there's a guy there who says that he knows you. I was like, oh, okay, who's that? And he's, oh, it's Clive Stock. And I was like, oh, my God, I love Clive. Oh, my God. And I was like, oh, I'm so glad you've met Clive. Because I probably talked about you or something, you know, when I was talking about college days in, in the van and that. And I was like, oh, I'm so chuffed that you'd met Ben because I love Ben so much and he's got such a great attitude towards learning and overcoming and testing and challenging himself. And watching him become a front man that didn't really know if he wanted to be one to having his shirt off, being ripped and sweaty and holding court in front of, you know, a few hundred people and having them in the palm of his hand within 
a matter of sort of years was really really a great journey to see and then I was so pleased that he was like going in again an extra step again in Toastmasters and that your paths had crossed because I knew that um you know he wouldn't uh let you guys down and that you know and he'd do really well and I was just so pleased that you guys had made that connection can you tell me a bit about what Toastmasters is because it was such a strange idea when he said it to me he was like yeah well you you go and it's like you know, you're all in a group and you have to make speeches and it's all about how to become a confident, um, would the word be like a raconteur? I don't know. I think it it can be a presenter mm. is one thing. Uh, you know, being a somebody who gives speeches is, is slightly different. And, um, but certainly being an MC... And presenting it or, or hosting an evening, right. that those uh, have been very very useful skills, and and certainly you know if I want to um, give a speech, then I know how to how to write it, I know how to prepare it, and I know how to deliver it. So I think those things within Toastmasters are are fantastic skills, and and I I only joined it because. Um, Somebody came along to a, a free workshop that I did on public speaking because I thought, you know, how difficult can it be? Because I'm a teacher. I've been a teacher for 20 years yeah. or, or at that point, I think probably about 18 years. You know, it's no different. I stand on my feet. I stand in front of people and I I give speeches every single day. And yes, I do. But there is a whole other side to it that I naively believed that didn't exist and it really does so I think you know again had I had those skills and when I went and promoted my book it would have been a very different story and I think it's part of the reason I stopped promoting my book because I didn't have the skills and I didn't have the confidence and I was just yeah really struggling with that yeah so so tell me Tell me the processes that you, that you guys go through to sort of build, like, so, okay, let's use this as a, a sort of a virtual workshop for a moment, okay? I am at yeah. current, currently at the time of this recording, I am Froome's acting mayor. I am the deputy mayor uh, of Froome uh, now, and I'm doing my deputy role uh, while the mayor is recovering from some surgery. Now, the other night I had to do, I had to chair my very first full council meeting now it wasn't in person it was on zoom and I'd never chaired a meeting ever before and I didn't I had that I had the apprehension and the sort of very faint nervous little butterflies beforehand knowing that I was going to have to do it but I didn't I didn't give it too much thought because I thought well in my job I, I, you know, I'm. It's essentially a bit of a stage because I work in a customer service, so there's a stage element to it. Um, uh, you know, I've done done the the touring around the world, playing to all kinds of people, and that that's a stage. And I've had radio shows, and that's a stage. And I've got a podcast, and that's also a, a stage of some description. And I didn't really think about it. I didn't. Um, I didn't let it eat at me that sort of like that little nervous thing and then when the moment came and it was like okay Andy this you know you're on green light and I had a little script I had to read <laughs> out at the beginning I felt a 
a nervousness and almost a little panic that I haven't felt for years. It was, um, you know, when your mind gets a, a bit fast and your, your breathing becomes a little irregular, you can feel your heart going a bit. It was this, this sudden moment of pressure at the beginning of, oh, all eyes are on you now. And this is a full, this is a serious forum. It's a full council meeting. You know, you have to deliver. And it was, it kind of took me back a bit. And it took me a few minutes after the, after I'd done the, the, the read out the script, it took me a few minutes while people were chatting and doing, you know, the, the meeting was underway to really kind of process what just happened to me because it's been a very long time since I felt that, that form of nervousness. And I'm now thinking, okay, well, if I, you know, if I become the the actual mayor in in May or whenever we appoint a new mm. one, I will have to write speeches. I've never done any speeches. I'm not worried about the chairing thing anymore because I've done it once now and it was okay. I get it, and I've I'm in it now. But the speech thing and the public speaking thing, I think I've naively thought, well, I do this anyway. You know what I mean? I do this anyway. I live on a stage, you know. Um, but it's very different, isn't it? The context is very, very different. And there are different sets of skills. It's not enough to just be a confident person or be used to crowds, is it? It's something different. So how would you prepare me for for my role as mayor of Froome? What would you suggest? Well, I think, you know, part of... Uh, the thing that I sort of realised with Toastmasters, and the Toastmasters is uh, it's been around for about seventy or eighty years. And it was it was it was formulated in America, I believe, and uh, it it really has two elements to it. It has uh, a leadership element to it. So people, uh, you learn to run meetings, and you also learn to. Uh, impromptu speaking you learn to interview other people you also learn uh, skills about what they call rhetorical devices so you may have noticed that while I've been talking I try if I get to a point and I want to emphasize it then I'll bring out three things so it could be that I'm going to if I want to talk about you know the importance of Toastmasters, I would say, well, the three things that really changed my life with Toastmasters are the ability to stand up and make an impact, to structure all of the things that I'm going to say, and and thirdly, have that formality so that people really take me seriously. So, you know, when I make those three points, when I just thought of those off the top of my head, they make you sound much more authoritative. And usually, to be honest, if you have three elements to something, you've probably covered, as long as they're different, you've probably covered enough of it to give people an understanding. So what would I what would I say? Well, first of all, think about the purpose of what you're going to be doing. And, you know, if you think, OK, when I led the meetings, uh, I I started and I used to kind of go off on a tangent and people would shout at me stick to the agenda, stick to the agenda. And actually, they don't want this kind of super uh, amazingly uh, intricate, clever comedian. Mm. They want somebody who's going to lead this 
bloody meeting. Right. And they want it to they, they want to be out that door by eight thirty. They don't want to be farting about listening to anecdotes. So um <laughs> you know, and I think that the think about the purpose of what you want to say. And the other thing to remember is uh, nobody says, well, he did a brilliant speech. I loved it, but it was a bit short. Nobody ever says that. Right. They'll say, I loved it, but they'll they'll kick off if you go over. So I think that's the other thing. Keep it, think about your purpose, structure it, uh, keep it brief, and get off the stage. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> and what do you tell yourself before you go on to do something if you feel those you know that that you feel that the uh, the magnification of sort of eyes and pressure building that the, the sooner you come to your moment is there anything that you say to yourself maybe a, maybe a mantra or maybe there's a, a reassuring line that you have in your head that you go well you know what we've got this and we've done this before and remember you you know this this and this and you're going to be fine is there anything that you go through your head Absolutely, yeah, every time. doesn't matter if it's music, if it's speaking, or if it's teaching. It's one thing. It's really, why is this important? And that's it. So, you know, if it's a piece of music, okay, why is this this piece of music important to me? Uh, And, you know, when I was performing at that uh, remembrance sort of zoom remembrance thing and i wrote the song and i performed it and it was really difficult to get through because and i thought well why am i doing this it's because he was a great guy and we really miss him and i want people to hear this um and you know if, if it's a speech i you know i i will only speak about things that i feel strongly about that i want to share and i think you know that's it, it have a strong purpose have something to say and then okay, I might mess it up, but at least I'll be focused on why I'm doing it and the purpose and what I want to get across. So I think for me, and the rest are skills, you know, but I even when I have meetings at work and I have a new job and I have to do a lot of meetings and the Toastmasters is absolutely brilliant uh, experience for that. Uh, but I do think, okay, what do I want to get across? Why am I? Why have I put? Why am I talking about this? Why is it on the agenda? And and I only put things on there that I feel quite strongly about. And and if I can't, again, you know, I know you. You have you interviewed Mr. Rob Bryan yet? I haven't yet. No, I am doing at the time of this recording. I should be doing Rob uh, tomorrow evening. But the, I don't know what order these podcasts will come out in. So he, maybe his episode will be out by the time you're hearing this. <laughs> maybe it's not. Um, spoiler alert, Rob Bryan, professional drummer extraordinaire, is on, on the way, or he's been, whichever one. If you, if you haven't seen it, it's coming out. If you haven't heard it, check it out. <laughs> but he, I mean, he's, uh, yeah, I learned a lot from him because he, he uh, I interviewed him a couple of times for the book. and uh, But he... I said, you got any advice? And he's, and he, you can ask him about this when you interview him, if you haven't already. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, love everything. That's the advice. He says, yes. love everything. And I know what you're going to say, Clive, because you told us what he said to you, or you told me, and I've remembered it. So you said to him, okay, how do you do this when the piece of music you're being paid paid to play may not necessarily be something that you're excited about or is really doing you 
you know, really hitting you in the spot. And he said to you, uh, this might be, I might misquote it slightly or paraphrase it. I listen to it and I listen to it and I listen to it until I love it. Absolutely. And it's, it's such good advice. And, and if we go back to, you know, how we deal with difficult people is that we need to understand them. We need to take more time to understand them and, and, and work out who they are and, and love them. Yeah. You know, and a lot of a lot of the time, people say, "Okay, you you just need to put up with it and just put on a brave face, bite your lip." And actually, I think no, that's that's a disservice. I think you know you owe it to to dig deep and find it in yourself to to love that person. <clears throat> you know, really make a connection with them. So I think you know, I think that's the thing. It's if somebody asks you to talk about something you don't necessarily be... I, I gave somebody at Toastmasters, I said, right, give me a subject that you that you would hate to do a speech on. And he said, got just the one, health and safety. And I said, okay, yeah, I'll do it. And uh, I, I won, a, won an award because um, I made it... I thought, how can I make this fun and exciting? Mm. And I did. So, uh, and it's, it, it's about that. It's make, learn to love everything. Right. That's really interesting. There's there was something you said to me once when we were working on some coursework. It was just me and you. And what you said kind of it kind of rocked me because I didn't I didn't have any concept of 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 what you said before you said it to me. Um you said, "Andy, I think you have the highest emotional intelligence of any student I've seen." And I was like, first of all, I thought, what is emotional intelligence? And then you sort of explained it to me. Um, how important is is emotional intelligence when you are when you're, you know, um, speaking to an audience or teaching? Uh, you know, it did, when you said you have to understand them, you have to love the you know these people, and you have to, you know, how important is that? Does this set me in good stead? Um, we're given that what you said does this bode well for me or does this mean I'm going to feel things um, much more deeply and it could be uh, extra obstacles oh that's a really good question because I think if you having that emotional intelligence I mean there are people who who have extremely high emotional intelligence and they they're very empathetic and they, it, to them, it's it's uh, they don't know how to use it, because because what people think is, okay, uh, if if they can detect that somebody's feeling bad, that they should change the way they do it and stop what they're doing, and uh, or not do it. And I don't think you're like that. I think you you realise, you know, you can see it written on your face when you've supported other people in their band. And you've you've noticed that there's a bit of a problem between two people. Um, you don't stop. You don't just suddenly give up. You you are aware of it, and then you work with it. And I think that that is the strength. It's it's one thing to have it, but also to think, okay, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna be aware of it, and I'm going to do something with it, and I'm gonna do my best. And I think. You know, I think that's the difference because some people either don't have the emotional intelligence or they have the emotional intelligence, but they don't know what to do with it. And right. you're always 
always know what to do with it and how to help other people. Uh, and, you know, and you say, well, look, we have got to perform. We have got to do that that gig. So, you know, so you're, you're not you're not giving in, but you're, you're being aware and there's a difference. I, I don't I think it's a it's a real asset. And the more tools that you learn, having that knowledge will be brilliant. Right. Um, do you think the, like you said, going back to the manipulation, uh, uh, which is inherent in teaching, um, do you think the, as you said there, the the ability to to, to emotionally recognise what's happening, and and work with it? Do you think, to a degree, that is that is the, the you know the form of manipulation, which is sort of key in teaching is to realize you know okay this is the situation and and how how do we mold how do we mold how we approach this to get the right outcome from this individual is you know well it's a difficult one because i think when the more techniques you learn and the manipulations that you learn the more able you are to manipulate people but the the key thing is to make sure that you always think okay what does that person want what do they need um and are they aware of what they need and you know because you know they say oh you can you know take the horse to water but you can't make them drink it well i think is you know they may not want to drink it and that's their choice um so i th- i think there there's a, a real balance between uh, having those skills and manipulating them. I mean, sometimes I've I've thought, okay, after I've I've sort of got somebody to do some work, and I think actually they don't really want to do that. They don't really want to do this course. And sometimes when you, you know, they somebody's made a, a decision that actually two thirds of the way through the course, they don't really want to be a musician, and they hate the playthroughs, and actually they'd be glad to get out of the, out of this place and. And and you do manipulations and it feels wrong because you because mm. you know that they've made that decision to not do it and I think that's hard that's hard because obviously with that you know Spider Man with that power of you know knowing how to steer and, and manipulate and perhaps use some psychological tricks here and there to to get people to you know a goal. Um, comes a lot of responsibility to to use those skills and, and that insight for benevolent reasons rather than to your own gain or um that of uh, because you could you could use those uh skills to um drive up the average pass merit score or something of of the course and please the uh the you know the board of directors or whatever the the governing bodies are but you know it's we're dealing with you're dealing with humans, aren't you? And and yeah, and so it's, yes. it's an interesting it's an interesting sort of um, line to to tread, isn't it? It is, and and that manipulation is, you know, it, it's at best it's going to be uh, a relatively short. Uh, what's the word? Adherence. You know, so they're right. only going to do it for a while, and so you know, yes. You know, there's the saying, isn't there? You can fool some of the people some of the time and you can fool some of the people all of the time. 
but you can't feel, uh, fool all the people all of the time. And I think it's the same with the manipulations in, you know, for example, I'll give you, people are probably wondering what the hell is he talking about? Manipulation, what does he mean? What does he mean? What does he mean? Well, for example, I remember we had a load of stuff to move and there was these, uh, there was a whole load of like the tech guys and it was kind of every now and again, you get a group that maybe like, love going to the gym. So they're all kind of like, you know, beefed up and, and uh, really muscly with those kind of vests and various things and, and looking very muscular. And, and I needed some help. And I said, guys, are those, you know, those muscles you've got, are they just for show? <laughs> and, um, and they went, no. I said, oh, great. Come and give me a hand. And um, so they did. But <laughs> and it was, it was a manipulation, but it was only a short-term manipulation because I knew that they wouldn't want to help me. And if I asked them directly to help me, they wouldn't help me. <laughs> so um, it's just little <laughs> manipulations, uh, you know, I think, yeah. The, you're a master of the dark arts, Clive, I think. <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, I suppose so. I suppose so. Because I think there's a lot of pressure to, like you said, to get people through and, uh, you know, and, and yes, that, that you're right. Sometimes it does make it a dark art because people, you think, well, they're two thirds of the way through. The best thing for them to do is to finish the course, but they don't really want to. And that's hard. Yeah. And it's recognizing that, isn't it? And and I guess there's that your instinct is to not let people fall behind. But yes. sometimes, I guess, and that will probably be something that comes from great experience and, and years on the job. Is that sometimes I think you, and I can I'm not naming any names, but I can think of people that that were on the courses with us who were just there to um, waste time and not get a job. I think, and I think that you know, or not you know, go into the real the real world quote unquote you know there's a lot of people there that really didn't i think didn't have any business being there really from a music musical point of Mm. view um and i think you know you've got to learn when to go okay we've got i'm gonna have to let this one go because if i spend any more effort on this one there's someone else over here that that really does need it and will benefit from it and and I guess it's the figuring out where you put your energies, isn't it? And knowing when it's time to call it a day with someone and say, all right, well, we've tried. And I'm confident now that you're, this is dead in the water. I know it, it is hard because, you know, a lot of people's nature is to try reasonably and then, and then give up, you know, with those people. And, and actually when you're an educator, you can't, you can never give up on them. And, uh, you know, it is hard. Sometimes you, you do everything you can and then you get to the end of the course and you just wave them goodbye, you know, and yeah. say, I wish you all the best. Um, and, you know, I, I've coached people for teaching and sometimes I say that there are some students who um, you never find out why, who they really are and what their real motivations are. And it's, you know, but... They don't, but you shouldn't stop trying, right? To find that out. It's that line from that film, yeah. Some men you just can't reach. (laughs) That is it. That is exactly what it is, and it's and and women as well. (laughs) Yeah, and women. Yeah, sorry, Clive. It seems that there's a theme with you that all of all throughout your life, you find something that scares you. And you and you look it in the eye and you work on it and you you put some real k- 
concerted effort into um, overcoming this obstacle, or at least becoming comfortable and being able to coexist with the with the feelings that it gives you. Um, what's next? Um, good. That's a good question. I think probably another book, yeah. because uh, I've I trained teachers now for five years and coached teachers and sort of adults um and I did think oh okay I can probably write a book after about a year or two of doing it I really couldn't uh because when when the confident performer happened you know I'd been teaching music for about 15 16 years and I'd been a, a musician you know one way or another since I was 10 you know and I thought okay I haven't got enough to write it now, but I think I have, yeah, in the next year or two, I think it'll be about how to be the confident teacher. How to be the confident teacher, that's great. Uh, and uh, are you going to mm. be using any new techniques to write this? Are you going to be drawing upon uh, techniques that you'd, you've described previously in, in your other book? Or is this a whole new, I guess if you're writing a book on it, it has a whole new ball game attached to it. Yeah, I mean, that's the difficult thing is, is that there's been lots of books, academic books written about teaching. Uh, there haven't been that many books written about nerves and confident performing as musicians. There's a few and uh, some of them are good and some of them I just, I can't actually get through them. I don't like the way they're written, but there's been loads on teaching. So I think it's that's going to be hard. But every now and again, I think, you know, I talk to colleagues or coach people and I think, blimey, this this is a concept which is from my book. So some of them do actually have a real thing, you know, like musical things. Like if I said to you, you're going to play uh, your first time, you're going to play the Hollywood Bowl. And it's like, I don't know how many thousand people there. Um, what 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 song would you open with? A new one? Or one that's kind of like you, you like, and it, you you've been playing it for a, quite a while. Uh, you, well, the instinct would tell you to go with one that you've been playing for a while because you want to get the you want to get warmed up. You want to you know you want to figure out any little bugs in the live audio mixing and things like that. anything that may come up. You want to be as is is deeply in your comfort zone as possible. I would say instinctually. Um, so that you, you know, if something does go wrong, um, you can sail through it hopefully without anyone noticing. Not that they ever really do, I've found, but it still doesn't stop you being terrified <laughs> of it. Um, but I, you know, I have a feeling that you're going to say something about the other option that's far more interesting. <laughs> no, I, I'd, I'd go with your advice. Um, you know, I, okay, because you want it to go well and for all the other reasons, because you're adapting to that situation. Mm. So I think, you know, teaching is the same. Go with something that you start with, something you feel confident with, that makes you feel comfortable, makes other people feel comfortable. And once you get to know the group, then you can do it. But, you know, I, I, I again, I use manipulations if I change that. But essentially... No, I'd go with it. So I think, you know, there are concepts and I put that in the book and that's what I would say to teachers. Start with something that you feel confident with. Right. So, yeah, there is a lot of crossover. That reminds me of, I saw um, I saw Radiohead at Glastonbury um, 
oh god i'm not sure what the year was now it was the 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 most recent year that they'd headlined it um it must have been two two years ago maybe i'm not sure covid is completely ruined my uh, concept <laughs> of years um but they came on in the first 40 i'd say the first 40 minutes of their set no hits no big singles really almost experimental beat driven avant-garde to a degree art rock and i remember being stood in the crowd thinking i want karma police and i want creep and i want <laughs> you know the other ones you know i want them and i want them now i want my sing-alongs but there was another part of me that was thinking, oh, this is such a big energy move. This is just a real statement. They've come out on a headline slot, Glastonbury Festival. They know the world is watching. They know the BBC is broadcasting it. And they have decided to use the first 40 minutes to do whatever the hell they wanted and please them first as musicians before, before us. And it's a bit of an arrogant move, but there was something in the confidence of doing that that I thought was very impressive. I, I think they are very confident musicians for sure. And I think they have to do something that's slightly different, don't they? They always have done. They've always been the the first to do various things and they've always been, been big on the, you know, with the digital... Um, sort of laws about music and copyright they've always been there haven't they yeah. at the forefront either fighting it or suggesting things so um as, yeah i think uh, yeah they're, they're not your average musicians are they i think no. they are definitely uh yeah i mean good to them because they probably in you know in their minds they probably think okay i really believe in this yeah i'm gonna do this and they have that confidence if it comes from within um, and, you know, otherwise you end up, you, I mean, you could say, you know, people who do different things are innovative and they are the the trailblazers. Yeah. So maybe we should do it. I think they've become a new archetype. I think Radiohead were a new archetype band. And uh, they continue to challenge challenge that concept of themselves, I think. Um, but what happened, interestingly, with that is when they did get round to playing the big sing-along hits, um, I struggled to think, other than Foo Fighters and some others, I, I really struggled to think of um, a headline set at Glastonbury where it felt more euphoric to be, because mm. they they left you hanging for it. You had to, you know, it's not like, oh, we're not just going to come out and give you a single. Do you know what I mean? You know, that was their way of filtering out the uh the casuals you know and uh, you know there was about 15 20 minutes in and my mate looked at me and he was like oh mate should we go and i was like no 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 because by the time we get out of this massive crowd it's going to be over anyway um so we might as well just stick with it. you know and i was glad that we stuck with it because when they did finally give us what we wanted it was that anticipation the anticipation uh that they built you know, it's like, oh, they're going to do one next that we know. They're going to do one next, and they didn't, they didn't, they didn't. And then when they did, it was like, oh, yes, yes, give it to me, yes. Um, <laughs> that's a, that's one of the only times I've seen a band do it like that, to have that confidence to not to not open with a hit, just to just to make sure they're playing to a home, you know, a home crowd. It's a risky 
risky uh, approach. It's very it? risky, very, very risky. Let's uh, let's start wrapping this up, Clive. I want to ask you uh, in closing, who are some performers and public speakers who you really, now that you feel that you know the the, the mechanics and the nuts and bolts of, of you know, performing and, and public speaking, who are the ones that you look at and you think, wow, those guys are really inspiring. And I can see, because I'm, I'm fascinated by stand-up comedians a lot and how they structure what they do and how mm. they operate. And again, that will be a whole other theatre to a speech write, writing a speech or hosting a, 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 a chairing a meeting, let's say. It's a whole other ball game. Um, but... Who who are the people you look at and you go, wow, they are fantastic. I don't know, I don't know how they do it as well and as they do and so effortlessly. I think, uh, well, the, the interesting the the stand up comedian stuff is uh, really interesting because they, I've done some co- uh, comedy competitions for Toastmasters and it's one of the most difficult things I've ever done because the first time you do it you get an amazing buzz from it. You get a few laughs. And then the next time you do it, you don't because you're, you're, you're rehearsed. And there's a, there's a point where it, it works and it has an honesty and comedy needs to have an honesty. Otherwise it doesn't, otherwise it dies. And it goes like this. It goes, uh, honesty, uh, complete insincerity where you, they just sound like they're reading the lines yeah. and they're waiting for the laughs and then they work through it and they keep going. And, and I think I was listening to, well, the person that I think is probably most impressed me with the comedy is definitely Paul Chowdhury. Right. Uh, I don't know if you've seen him. He's on, I think he does a, they've got a performance of him on Amazon Prime. And he's very close to the mark, but his timing the way that he connects with the audience and the way he breaches that and goes into the audience, brings the audience in, then insults them and then has dialogues with. And it's just, I mean, for me as a public speaker and a um, maybe a fairly new one compared to him, I mean, it is just amazing and magical to see him the way that he does it and it, you just think oh my god some of the material is so wrong and uh, and yet he gets away with it so i think definitely that as a as a public performer and again like i said to you it's things that have inspired me fairly recently but that was probably about a year ago i saw that and i still remember it uh so there's that and um, musicians i don't know who i suppose I think one of my yeah yeah there's the uh, Keith Jarrett right um, the I don't know if you've ever heard it but there's a he did this thing the Cologne concert and what he did he just he he had a, a upset stomach he went to Cologne uh, not not to get rid of his upset stomach because it's a long way to go isn't it um, <laughs> but he just he to do this this concert and they had a grand piano it was freezing. And one of the notes was about a tune and he didn't feel well, but he sat down at the piano and he improvises his whole two hour set based, based on whatever he starts with. And there's just something in it. There's a whole journey. There's a, a whole narrative an improvisation and he takes you on this massive journey. And, um, and it's that 
for me is that it, it, nothing about it is prepared and he just goes on this journey and you you're with him right to the end and it's yeah even I don't know 40 or 50 years later it's still grabbing me Thank you so much to my esteemed guest, Clive Stocker, for uh, spending some time with me and catching up after so many years on this week's episode of The Giant Pod. We will leave various links to uh, Clive's uh, book and uh, music and other bits and bobs that we find in the show notes description, so please make sure you go and check those out. Uh, Please like, subscribe, leave a review. If you could just share this with one friend that you think may benefit from this conversation, please do. That really, really does help us grow. If you want to follow The Giant Pod on social media, you can. The Twitter and the Instagram is at The Giant Pod. My Instagram is Andy underscore S1S. This podcast was produced by the Toastmaster himself, Harry Williams. <laughs> we will see you next week on The Giant Pod. Thank you very much. Hear, here.